Hello, this is Rabbi Daniel Karopkin. Welcome to this podcast for learning the classic philosophical work by Maimonides, or Rambam, called More Nevuchim, or Guide for the Perplexed. This text has been studied for centuries by great scholars, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. It seeks to reconcile Aristotelian and Neoplatonic philosophy with the Torah of our people, and is considered the perfect entree for reconciling one's spiritual and rational personas. Join me for half-hour installments as we explore the text together. Okay. Hi, everybody. I hope everyone's well. Let's see. Here we go. Um, hi, this is Danielle Karapkin speaking to you from Thornhill, Ontario in Canada at Beth Avram Yosef of Toronto. And we are studying Maimonides' Guide for the Perplexed, Morena Vuchim. We are in section two, chapter 35. Um, the Rambam in our previous chapter had made a point of saying what the nature of normative prophecy is. Normative prophecy is prophecy via an intermediary that implants, that intermediary image that God implants in our mind to be able to perceive the will of God. It's a the sort of divine message. And we're going to get back to that a little bit today. To the subject of today's discussion is to talk about the special quality of one prophet who existed in all of history by the name of Moshe Rabbeinu Moses. His prophecy was sui generis. It was a unique form of prophecy. And as the Rambam, as the Rambam will tell us, even though we use the word nevuah or prophecy to talk about the um, information that was given to Moshe and the information that was given to other prophets, the word navi, the word prophet, means two completely different things. It's almost like saying that someone uh, is human when in reality there's different levels of humanity or, or you know, different types of human beings, male and female, etc. Um, but it's a very, very generic term. The prophecy of Moshe Rabbeinu was nothing like the prophecy of other human beings. Now, the Rambam opens up our chapter to tell us something very interesting. He says, I've already told you uh, in my earlier writings, and here he's referring to his Perush HaMishnayot, his commentary to the Mishnah in his introduction to Tractate, um, the 10th chapter of Tractate Sanhedrin, and he's referring to his um, his codification, his great Yad HaChazakah, his Mishnah Torah in Hilchot Yisodei HaTorah. I've already told you in both of those places the four things which make Mosaic prophecy, the prophecy of Moses, different from the prophecy that was given to other prophets. So let's let's take a look. He says, I'm not going to detail that here for you now. Um, there's no need for me to write it. But in because the Rambam has mentioned it, we certainly should make sure that we are aware, at least, of a cursory understanding of the, what the Rambam understands is the difference between the, prophe the prophecy of Moshe Rabbeinu and the prophecy of other prophets. So let me share my screen with you where we can bring up that text. Um, we have uh, in our handout, and by the way, this handout, as I mention every time, is available for download either in the Facebook community Shi'ur in Morena Vuchim, and it's also available 
on the webyeshiva.org uh, uh, website, which is the platform for uh, our broadcasting of this uh, of this shiur. Um, so the four differences between Moshe's prophecy and others' prophecy. Others, other prophets prophesy while unconscious in a vision, whereas Moshe prophesied while completely awake and standing. That's difference number one, at least the way it's codified in Rambam's Mishneh Torah in Hilchot Yisodei HaTorah, chapter 7, Halacha Vav, Halacha 6. It's interesting to note that the Rambam has an almost identical listing of the four differences um, in his Perusha Mishnah to tractate Sanhedrin, but he reverses one and two between his Perusha Mishnah and Hilchot Yisodei HaTorah. So because Hilchot Yisodei HaTorah was written later, we're using his, his ordering in Hilchot Yisodei HaTorah. It's not clear to me at all why the Rambam changed the order, but he's clearly doing something. I'm not sure what that is. So the first difference the Rambam writes is that all prophets prophesy while unconscious in a vision, whereas Moshe prophesied while completely awake and standing. If you were to look at Moshe Rabbeinu while he was having a prophecy, it would look like he was speaking to someone who wasn't there. He was literally speaking face to face with God, which is what the Torah states about him. Um, uh, if you would look at Avraham Avinu, by contrast, uh, while he was having a prophecy, his body would be uh, would be would be uh, in a lying down position. His body would be paralyzed. It would look like he's in a deep sleep or in a coma, and he's having his prophecy in a dream. That's the first thing explains the Rambam. Number two, other prophets prophesy via a malach. If you recall from chapter 34, the word malach doesn't just mean angel in the way that we think about it, the way that the Ramban thought about it at the beginning of Parshat Vayera, but it means any intermediary force. And that intermediary force is the intellectual packet of information or visionary information that God implants within the mind of a prophet. They see an implanted image. But Moshe prophesied directly with God without an, any intermediary image implanted in his mind. That is the second difference. Difference number three, and we talked, if you recall from last week, we talked about the uh, disputation between the Ramban, Nachmanides, and Maimonides. Number three, other prophets are overcome by fear and trembling during prophecy. There's almost like, a, as we mentioned, a... a um, not only a great emotional distress, but also a loss of one's physical faculties. Moshe prophesied as one who speaks to his friend. And finally, number four, other, and in other words, Moshe did not feel that sense of, of, um, of emotional, uh, being emotionally overwrought or overcome. And number four, other prophets needed to prepare themselves for, for prophecy at propitious times. And, can, and even then, after they've prepared themselves, can only prophesy if Hashem so desires. But Moshe, by contrast, prophesied anytime he wished. And, and the Rambam writes uh, in, his, um, in his Hilchot Yisodei HaTorah that that is precisely why he needed to remain in a constant state of celibacy. A prophet needs to, when he's in that very, very spiritual zone of communing with God, he needs to have a purified body, um, and that can be done while he's still married because he can temporarily segregate himself from his wife, go to mikvah, whatever he has to do to purify himself through ablutions, 
and then have a prophecy. But Moshe was in a constant state of readiness to prophesy with God, and therefore he had to be in a state of celibacy. Again, that too was sui generis. Okay, that's the difference. Now, uh, what's curious to note is, even though the Rambam says, I've noted for you in my previous writings, the difference between Mosaic prophecy and regular prophecy, there's no need for me to repeat it. And then he says, moreover, it does not enter into the purpose of this treatise. We're on page 367 in the Pines edition. Now, this is, to me is a very telling statement that it does not enter into the purpose of this treatise. In other words, there's no point for the theme of Moren Vuchim for you to know about the difference between Mosaic prophecy and regular prophecy. Now, the question is, why is that? And I think that this is a very, very um, profound statement, which is important to latch onto to really understand why the Rambam feels it's so important to talk about prophecy in his Guide for the Perplexed, which is his work on understanding um, biblical passages that help uh, shed light on Ma'ase Merkava and Ma'ase Bereshit, the act of the chariot and the act of creation, as we've talked about many times before. It's, I think it's important to note that the Rambam views the, uh, the intellectual perfection of the individual as a way of attaching oneself to God to the greatest degree possible. Another form of expressing that is to saying that a person becomes a prophet, because if you'll recall, and we've discussed this in previous chapters, the Rambam understands prophecy as the ultimate intellectual perfection for any human being. That once you reach a certain level of great intellectual um, um, elevation, you attach yourself to this um, disembodied intellect, which is God has created to allow man to have access to divine knowledge. Um, and that's the intermediary force by which a prophet has the ability to prophesy. If, indeed, the Rambam extols the virtue of Aristotelian philosophy, it's because the Rambam views that as the means, as a vehicle, to allow a person to achieve intellectual perfection. If intellectual perfection is prophecy, then we certainly can appreciate why the Rambam spend so much time talking about the prophetic experience, because it is possible for every human being who wishes to be intellectually perfect and attached to God to achieve that semblance of prophecy, perhaps not everyone on the same level, and perhaps in different eras of Jewish history, the accessibility of true prophecy varies from period to period. But the basic idea of a person achieving that ultimate intellectual closeness to God by bonding my the human intellect with the divine intellect is what we call ultimately nevuah, is what we call prophecy. Now, it's important to note, however, that mosaic prophecy is not what we've just described, is not an intellectual uh, kind of perfection which can only bond to God via intermediary. Mosaic prophecy, as we mentioned, is a sui generis, it's a unique phenomenon that was necessary because Moses was the giver of the Torah. And we're going to talk about that in chapter 39 a little bit later on as to why Mosaic prophecy is different. But the Rambam here is basically communicating to us that Mosaic prophecy is completely outside the ballpark of what a regular human being is capable of attaining, even someone who wishes to be the philosopher king and reach that perfect intellectual attainment and connection to, to Hashem, 
Mosaic prophecy is completely outside the the uh, the the access of any normal human being, and it was something a miraculous creation of God. So let's just keep that in mind as we go through the chapter. I'm going to continue with the text. He says, I will let you know that everything I say on prophecy in the chapters of this treatise refers only to the form of prophecy of all the prophets who were before Moses and who will come after him. As for the prophecy of Moshe Rabbeinu, I shall not touch upon it in these chapters with even a single word, either in explicit fashion or in, or in a flash. Why? Because in my mind, the term prophet used with reference to Moshe and to others is amphibolous, meaning that Moshe's prophecy has nothing to do with the regular kind of prophecy that I'm um, promoting and I'm advocating for, for, the, for my readership, for you, my student, who would like to attain intellectual perfection. The same applies, in my opinion, to his miracles and to the miracles of others, for his miracles do not belong to the class of the miracles of the other prophets. Now here the Rambam says something also quite interesting, which he's actually going to link to scripture. The Rambam makes a point of saying that not only is Moses's prophecy sui generis, unique and different from all other kinds of prophecy, but the, um, but the uh, miracles that Moshe performed during his lifetime were also unique and never to be repeated by any other prophet. Now, why is that significant to a discussion of sort of putting Moshe in his own category? It's important to note that the Rambam is a miracle minimalist, which means that he is of the belief that when God created the world, he set it into motion such that it should not deviate from its normative natural path, with rare exception when God, and the, the, um, the most notable exception is where God uh, wanted to make his presence known uh, at the time of the redemption from Egypt and at the giving of the Torah. But those were unique phenomenon, phenomena in human history, never to, to be repeated before or after the experience of Gu'ulat Mitzrayim, of the redemption from Egypt and Matan Torah and the subsequent giving of the Torah. Therefore, any miracles that were performed by, by prophets before or after Moshe happened on a much smaller scale. They were not earth-shattering in the same way. They were not done on, on such a public scale as Moshe Rabbeinu's miracles. And it would seem that whatever necessitated Moshe having this kind of unique experience of being the giver of the law also necessitated a certain level of miraculous departure from the norm. But all other prophets can access God using this intellectual uh, process of, uh, of intellectual perfection. And that intellectual perfection subsequently allows them some level of manipulation of nature to the point where they can perform a miracle. But it is a miracle on a much small, on a localized scale. And even then, the Rambam may be of the opinion that these are manipulations that do not completely depart from the rules of nature, as we'll, we'll talk a little bit about as we go on. But let's take a look, continue along in the text. The proof, in, the proof taken from the law as to his prophecy being different from that of all who came before him is constituted by a verse in Parshat Va'era in the book of Shemos. When Moshe complains to God at the end of Parshat Shemot and says to him, 
Lama Shalachtani, why did you send me, God? From the time that I have come to Paro, he's only made things worse for the Jews by denying them straw. After Moshe and Aharon initially came before Paro, um, Moshe lodges his complaint to God. God responds to him, you don't understand what's about to happen. That Vo'era el Avraham el Yitzchak ve'el Yaakov be'el Shaddai, Ushmi Adonoi lonodati lahem, that I appeared before Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov using my guise of El Shaddai, but my four-letter name was not known to them, or I would, did not make known to them, or I did not appear in that guise to them. And these words, the Rambam understands, demonstrates a qualitative difference between the prophecy of Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov to the prophecy of Moshe Rabbeinu. When the verse says that I did not make known to them or I did not manifest to Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov my name of uh, the four-letter name, the Tetragrammaton, it does not mean that that word does not appear in the context of the parshiot of Lech Lecha and Vayera and all of the parshiot in Bereshit where God communicates with our forefathers. The four-letter name of God does appear but what the Rambam understands is what God is telling Moshe is that there are different levels of prophecy. The level of prophecy that I made known to the forefathers was in uh, was on a level that was subsumed under sort of a natural process of, in, of intellection, of intellectual perfection that the forefathers attained, and as such they were able to perceive me using a natural process of intellectual perfection that allows ideas to be implanted in their minds once they reach a certain level of perfection. That's what the Rambam calls El Shaddai. But as far as you, Moshe, the prophecy that I am granting you is a face-to-face -face prophecy, not via intermediary and all of the other things. And that type of prophecy is known as the Yudke Vavke, or the four-letter name of prophecy that I'm granting to you. That's how the Rambam understands that verse. I would like to point out, however, and here you see a question in this bulleted item, does this verse truly indicate a qualitative difference in prophecy or divine manifestation of miracles? And here we refer you to the Ramban. Specifically, the Ramban has a very interesting drasha on the book of Kohelet, on the book of Ecclesiastes. And at some point, and that's, this can be found in the Kitvei HaRamban, uh, first volume, and at one point in his drasha, Nachmanides points out that, that this verse is, in, in contrast to the Rambam, is not indicative of a qualitative difference of prophecy between that of the forefathers and that of Moshe Rabbeinu. But it is rather reflective of how God was manifesting himself in the world when he would grant prophecy to these two groups of people. God did not manifest himself as the God of miracles when he manifested himself to Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. But God manifests, is manifesting himself to Moshe in the guise of the God who completely overturns all of the laws of nature. The Ramban says a similar idea in his Torah commentary on this verse, but you may want to check out his drasha in, on Kohelet as well. But, that's, but getting back to Maimonides, he understands that this verse is a reflection on the qualitative difference of prophecy between the forefathers and Moshe. Thus it informs us 
that his apprehension, Moshe's apprehension, was not like that of the patriarchs, but greater, nor all the more like that of others who came before. In other words, certainly those who came before the patriarchs could not achieve a prophecy that would rival Moshe. As for the difference between his prophecy and that of all those who came after, it is stated by way of communicating information in the dictum. What about subsequent prophets who lived after Moshe Rabbeinu? Perhaps their prophecy could rival Moshe's. That, the Rambam says, is, is um, countered by the last verses of the Torah. The last verses of the Torah from Parshat Zvizot HaBracha, Deuteronomy chapter 34 says, There was never again to arise a prophet among Israel like Moses. Asher yedao Hashem panim el panim, who knew God face to face. Lechol ha'otot v'hamofetim asher shelecho Hashem, la'asot be'eretz Mitzrayim, lefaro u'lechol avadav u'lechol artso. The Rambam sees great significance in this verse. The verse is actually telling me two very important things. Number one, that prophecy, Moshe's unique prophecy, is linked to Moshe's unique performance of miracles that completely shattered the rules of nature and were, were, were manifest worldwide. Furthermore, the fact that they were manifest on such a mass scale means that they were not only manifested to the Jewish people, but they were manifest even to the enemies of the Jewish people. Now, why is that relevant? Rav Tolidano makes a salient point, and he says that many times a person who is very charismatic and wishes to make a deep impression might perform a very impressive act, which may be miraculous, it may not be miraculous, but the people who want to believe in that individual may inflate the significance of that action or of that speech to a greater degree than the people who are looking at it objectively without sincerely wanting to subscribe to that individual. The fact that even the enemies of Moshe, who really wanted to reject him and to prove him to be a fraud, were, were forced to, um, to uh, acknowledge that what he was doing was, miracle, was miraculous, that is an indication that this was so blatant, the, uh, the transformation for, uh, uh, of miracles to transcend the laws of nature, that even the enemies of the performer had to acknowledge that those miracles were real. And Moshe did these miracles, Yisrael. He did all of these wondrous acts and all of these prophetic statements in the eyes of all of Israel. And again, as we'll see perhaps in chapter 39, this is significant because Moshe is the giver of the Torah. And when you're the giver of the Torah, your prophecy rises to a completely different level from a prophet who is giving a localized message to a localized community. Now, if we, if we just skip now to page 368, Let's read a very important statement of the Rambam. Thus, and I have it here on the, on the handout in the bulleted list, thus it has been made clear that his apprehension is different from that of all those who came after him in Israel, which is a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, and in whose midst is the Lord, and all the more from the apprehension of all those who came in other religious communities, emphasis mine. Now, the... Um, 
this is an interesting point because although the Rambam uh, um, doesn't say it that much more explicitly than this, but this is fairly explicit. And you may well just want to bookmark chapter 35 of the Moren of Uchim if anyone asks you, can a person who's not Jewish become a prophet? Here, the Rambam seems to be suggesting that yes, even people who are from outside the Jewish people can achieve prophecy. It's just that the prophecy of Moshe Rabbeinu was far superior to any of his countrymen, the Jewish people, who are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, and who's and in whose midst is the Lord. And certainly his prophecy was higher than prophets who came in other religious communities. Now, Professor Ivry sees significance in that Moshe is, uh, that the Rambam here is sort of um, uh, trying to polemicize against Christians and Muslims who claim their prophets of, you know, Jesus and Muhammad respectively. But I don't think that that's really what the Rambam is trying to point out here. I think the Rambam is trying to say that as we've started off this chapter, their prophecy is a phenomenon that should be um, universal. It's a human experience of a human being using their um, human intellect to conjoin with God via intermediary. Um, if so, there should not necessarily be any difference from Aristotle and Moshe Rabbeinu, or Aristotle and, let's say, Jeremiah, shall we say. Moshe is different from both Jeremiah and Aristotle, but Aristotle should be capable of achieving prophecy just like Jeremiah. If so, all the Rambam is alluding to is that because this is something that is attainable for every human being who has a perfected intellect, uh, we have to concede that Moshe's prophecy is above all prophets, Jew and non-Jew alike. The reason why I'm dwelling on this point for just a little bit longer than normal is because many of you may be aware that Rabbi Yehuda Halevi in the Kuzari says explicitly that prophecy is only attainable for those who have the divine matter or the divinity or the Amar Allahi, as it, as it is in Arabic, you know, this divine uh, kernel embedded within their sort of genetics. And the, the Rabbi Huda Levi very much emphasizes this fact, especially in the first section of the Kuzari, that only Jews can attain prophecy. Non-Jews simply do not have the, um, the, uh, the God-given potential to be able to achieve prophecy. The Rambam here uh, clearly disagrees, and he says so that he says this point more explicitly in a work called Igeret Teiman, the Epistle of Yemen that he wrote to the Jews of Yemen. He pointed out to them that the reason why we reject the prophets, the prophecies of Muhammad, is not because a person who is not Jewish cannot prophesy, but rather it's because his prophecies simply were not prophecies. And we'll leave it at that for now. Um, and um, we've already talked about why. The Rambam creates this strong linkage between um, uh, prophecy and miracles. Uh, just like Moshe's uh, prophecy is unique, so too are his miracles unique because he needs to make that vital impression upon mankind that the Torah, which is timeless, is given on a one-time basis to all mankind via the lawgiver, Moshe, and therefore he is also the ultimate miracle worker to demonstrate that this is this unique experience 
that will not be rivaled by any other time or place. Again, Professor Ivry sees within this the significance of rejecting supersessionism or rejecting this idea of replacement theology, that at some point there was another testament, another Torah, like the New Testament or like the Quran, that was supposedly meant to replace the giving of the Torah. When you look at the caliber of miracles that Moshe performed that have been unrivaled by any other person who claims to be a prophet, whether legitimately or not, you see that Moshe's um, uh, uh, emergence as not only a prophet, but also as a miracle worker is a sui generis kind of thing. And therefore, this also reflects upon the timeless veracity and irreplaceability of the Torah. The Rambam then goes through a number of different uh, textual citations to demonstrate that all other prophets had localized prophecy. One example that he gives is um, uh, the, um, uh, a discussion of, of uh, the miracles of Elijah and Elisha. And we know that Elisha's apprentice was a man named Gehazi. And after, we just read about it in this past week's Haftarah for Parshat Vayera, where it talks about the miracle that Elisha performed for the Shunammite woman to revive her son, bring him back from the dead. We also know that this woman went to live among the Philistine people, as is recorded in the second book of Kings chapter 8. And at that point, when he, the Philistine king asks about the miracle, this miracle worker, Elisha, he's heard rumors about him, but he doesn't know very much about him. And so the scripture records how he asks Gehazi about, tell me about the miracles that your master, your, your mentor apparently or allegedly has performed. And that passage, the Rambam says, is clear evidence that these were not performed on a mass scale that the whole world knew about them because that's why the Philistine king just heard like he just heard stories and he was inquiring about it, which indicates that it was not done on the same scale as the miracles of Moshe Rabbeinu. Um, there are, and the, at, towards the end of the chapter, the Rambam says that there are two cases of what appear to be very public miracles, but here too, the Rambam wants to point out that they did not rival just the mass scale of miraculous phenomena that Moshe Rabbeinu performed through the plagues and through the events at Mount Sinai. One of them is the event at, uh, uh, in Givon, which is recorded in the book of Joshua, chapter 10, that uh, when the Jews went out to war in, in their efforts to conquer the land of Israel, um, they were engaged in a battle which, had the sun set, uh, the Jews would not have been able to prevail in battle. They would have had to postpone the battle until the next day, and all bets would have been off as to who would have won. But God created a miracle, Vayidom Hashemesh V'yareach Amad, that the, the sun stood still and the moon did not come out until the Jews could take revenge upon their enemy or defeat the enemy. And here the, the Torah seems to be saying, or the, the scripture seems to be saying that this was a public miracle. And here the Rambam is challenged if Moshe's miracles were the, were the only kinds of miracles that were done worldwide that the entire popu human population was aware of, how do you explain this miracle that Joshua performed? And so the Rambam says that um, if you look at the text carefully, it says 
that the sun stood still so that the day was as long as Kiyom Tamim, like a, a complete day. And the Rambam sees in this verse that the uh, standing, of, standing still of the sun did not prolong the day that they were having the battle longer than the longest day of the summer. In other words, if you were to, you know, June 21st, 20th or 21st is the longest day of the year. If it, it, the, the battle did not take place necessarily on that day, but it seemed to be a very long day, just as long as the day that is the longest in the year. So the first thing the Rambam is pointing out is, is that this kind of miracle did not transcend the normative laws of nature, such that the day that the sun stood still in Joshua's time did not go, did not uh, extend longer than the longest day of the year. So already you're seeing that he's trying to minimize the nature of the miracle to say that it conformed to the standard rules of nature, not to go beyond what would be sort of like the, the longest day of a natural day of the year. Uh, it's also interesting to point out that when you look at um, the Rambam's Mishnah commentary to tractate Avot, that um, the Rambam states that the miracle of the sun standing still had been put into motion on the fourth day of creation. In other words, when God created all of the constellations on the fourth day of creation and put the sun, the moon, and the stars in their place and put them into motion, he also embedded within that um, permanent motion for all future time that the sun would stand still on that future day when Joshua would, would take his soldiers out to battle. And what the Rambam seems to be pointing out in that Mishnah commentary is that this was all embedded within the rules of nature, within like what the Ramban calls the Kale Shakai of nature, the normative motions of, of the way the world naturally runs. There was no departure from the standard laws. Whereas in Moshe's time, with the plagues and the splitting of the Red Sea, that was all a complete departure from the laws of nature. Uh, the other example that the Rambam gives is the story of uh, Elijah on Mount Carmel, where there was a tournament of uh, whose uh, sacrifices would be accepted. He had a tournament with the worshipers of Baal, which was an idolatry at that time. And there you see that there were great miracles that uh, Elijah, uh, not only did he mock the worshipers of Baal when miracles did not take place, when they tried to offer uh, an offering to their God, that the a great fire descends from heaven and consumes everything, even things that were drenched in water. The entire nation saw and fell on their face. They said the uh, Hashem is the Lord, Hashem is the Lord. This certainly also seems to be a very public miracle. But the Rambam says, no, it wasn't as public as Moshe Rabbeinu's miracles because this was localized to a few hundred people. It was not uh, as monumental and on as, ma as massive a scale as the prophecies of Moshe. And so just to conclude this chapter, 
uh, on page 369, the concluding paragraph is, after the prophecy and the miracles of Moshe have, in accordance with my injunction, been set apart in your mind, seeing that the extraordinary character of apprehension is similar to the extraordinary character of his actions, and after you have come to believe that his is a rank that we are incapable of grasping in its true reality, because it's completely different from any other kind of prophetic experience that I am describing in the guide, you shall hear what I say in all these chapters about prophecy and about the degree of the prophets in respect of prophecy, all these degrees being below this degree of Moshe. This was the purpose of this chapter. When we define prophecy, don't confuse what uh, Moshe experienced uh, in the Torah to what I am describing to you, which is attainable for every human being. And on that, we, we conclude this chapter. Uh, we will then talk about what normative prophecy is, an attachment to this intermediary intellect that which we've talked about before, the Seichel HaPoel, the active intellect, and stay tuned for that, Bezrat Hashem, next time. All right, we will hold it here for today. Let me wish you all a good day, and we will see you, um, Bezrat Hashem, not next week, because unfortunately I'll be traveling, but we will resume with chapter uh, 36 in two weeks from today. Have a wonderful rest of the week, everybody.